I'm going to ask you to return to the Gospel of John with me. We find ourselves in the last part of John chapter 19 today. A few weeks ago, I was asked by a young man, what is your favorite book in the Bible? And I said, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John, so John. (laughs) Um, In the most famous verse here, in John is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I want to pause for a moment and ask, what did Jesus mean when he said that God gave his only son? Certainly that implies that Jesus was born in a manger. He was given. But is that all that it meant? No, he gave his son as a substitute for our sin by sending him to die on the cross. I think you're like me, and we value this day that is the most horrific day and also the most beautiful day in which Jesus died on the cross. And we can't help but sing about that. Think about how many songs have the word cross in its title. At the cross, old rugged cross, down at the cross, power of the cross, when I survey the wondrous cross, the wonderful cross, at the cross, love ran red, hallelujah for the cross, lead me to the cross, and I'm sure that there are others. What I'd like to do this morning, as we have been working our way through the trials of Jesus, is that we now find ourselves right on the cusp of reading about how Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I don't think this morning's a time to get cute and try to offer up some jokes here to try to gain a cheap laugh. So my aim today is just to provide a very straightforward approach. No frills, no sermon outline, no, no even screen PowerPoint today of just looking at the death of Jesus as relayed to us through John, as we will find out one that was personally there. So if you want to listen to this message, I think the most effective way for you to do it is with your Bible on your lap, or if you don't have a hard copy of it, with your device, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and we will just work through this passage one section after another, and can we just take this story in again? And may it influence and impact us as it has in the past. So if you like to take notes, sometimes it's difficult to to provide an outline when you're just following along in a story. 
But in order to serve you, what I want to do is provide a few different words that will serve as headings of a paragraph. If you're taking notes, let me give you the first word, and that is the word cross. And that'll be verses 17 through 22 of John 19. So let's look at that together, shall we? Reading now in John chapter 19, Jesus has been arrested. He's been delivered over to the uh, soldiers to be crucified. And it says here in verse 17, and he went out. Bearing his own cross in the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic, is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, And in Greek, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Let's first consider the cross. It's been said that before the Romans put a man on the cross, they put a cross on a man. In verse 17, it says that he went out bearing his own cross. In an act of humility, the equivalent of a person carrying their own electric chair, they had Jesus, as well as other prisoners who would be crucified, carry their own cross. Now, there is some debate on whether he carried just one beam, that is the horizontal beam that would have weighed between 75 and 100 pounds, or actually both beams, the vertical beam as well. That total would have been probably over 200 pounds. Some Bible teachers say both beams. Some say only one beam. I would remind you of what the last 24 hours have looked like for Jesus. He was emotionally exhausted. There was a time where he was praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed and it was as if sweats of drops of blood were dripping off him. He was arrested. He stood before one of the high priests, Annas, and it was there where he was struck in the hand with a soldier. As he stood before Pilate, you remember from last week, he was That is, there was a whip that had chunks of metal and bone in it. And they would strike it over his exposed back as many times as they wanted. One of the purposes of this was to to, to cause him to get tired. Not only this, a, a crown was placed on his head. Another one of the gospel writers says he was beaten with a reed. John says that he was struck and the hand by some of these soldiers. Jesus is exhausted, and now he is being instructed to carry his cross. According to Matthew, there was another man named Simon of Cyrene that was compelled to help Jesus with his cross. It says there in verse 17 that he was taken to the place 
of a skull, which is in Aramaic, Golgotha. Why was this place called the place of the skull? We can guess, some have said that perhaps there was some old skeletons that remained there and, and there was a bunch of skulls. Likely this is not the case. Because we'll find out that when a, a person remained on the cross, eventually it'd be taken down and many of them would end up in the city dump where their body would be burned, a place called Gehenna. Others have said, well, no, there was, a, there was actually a place there where there were two caves that served, kind of looked like eyeballs. And then there was another place below that that kind of looked like a, a skull. And, and this is where Jesus was sent. Contrary to that old hymn, there, there is nothing to suggest here that there was a hill far away. Rather, there he was just brought to a, a cross, a place where the crosses would be. Verse 18 tells us, there they crucified him. It's astonishing how in these details, all John says is one word. They crucified him. Now in the first century, they knew exactly what that meant, but now it's 2023 and I think we need to pause and talk a little bit about what that have looked like. In our day, the death penalty really fulfills two different things. One, we want to make it private, just a few people, and swift. Let's, not, let's get this thing over with. But in Roman days, they took the opposite approach. They wanted it to be painful, long-lasting, and humiliating. That's why Jesus had to carry his own cross to the place where he would die. It was among the harshest way that you could kill another person. Whereas the Persians developed it, Romans perfected it. During AD 70, which would be a time years after the events here of John 19, there was this great riot in Rome, and the leaders of Rome did this mass crucifixion where they would crucify several Jews, and there were crosses all over the horizon, so much so that historians told us they actually had a lumber shortage. It was a statement. If you defy, if you disrespect Rome, you see those crosses over there, that's what will happen to you. Archaeologists in 1968 actually recovered the remains of a man that was crucified in Jesus' era. The study of the remains revealed that the victim was nailed to the cross in a sitting position, both legs over sideways with the nail penetrating the sides of both feet just below the heel. The arms were stretched out, each stabbed by a nail in the forearm. Dr. Nico Haas of the Hebrew University, a professor, described it as a compulsive position a difficult and unnatural posture meant to increase the agony of the sufferer. Let's consider a few components. First, the cross. We've talked about the two different beams. I'll remind you that Jesus would have been stripped naked. Contrary to the photos and paintings that we see of a cloth over his midsection, they were stripped naked at this time. 
There would be nails that would be driven into his, perhaps his wrist, perhaps his forearm, or his hands. These nails and these crosses would be reused from one prisoner to the next. What about pain? Of course there was intense pain. Matthew sheds light that as he is getting ready to be launched up on the cross, that they offered him some wine with something called gall in it. And this would have been used as of a painkiller. The kind of dead in the pain so it would be so difficult for him. The other gospel writers indicate that while he was up on the cross, there were the leaders, the Jews, that were wagging their heads and they were mocking him saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Our passage here tells us in verse 18 that he was between two others. They would take the most serious offender and they would put him in the middle. If there were five people that were being crucified all at once, the most serious criminal would be in the middle. According to Matthew, these robbers on either side of him were reviling him as well. And then we read about a sign. It was customary, according to the Romans, to put a sign on the cross that would lay out the offense. Murder, robber, insurrectionist. That was the reason why they were being killed. But it's as if God steps in on this sign here in these verses where he, he makes sure that what is written on that sign is Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. And we find out in verse 20 that that is written in three different languages. The first is Aramaic, which would have been the language of the Jews. The second is Latin, which would have been the language of the Romans or the soldiers. And the third is Greek, which would have been the common language of all the people of that time. I find it ironic that at this moment of absolute humility... Jesus is declared as king in all the known languages of that time, right there in that area. First, we see the cross. Now, if you're taking notes and you want to write another word down, you can write this word, garment. Look what it says in verse 23 through 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus... They took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. As a, uh, let me get that again. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to seize who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Remember, Jesus would have been stripped naked. And one of the perks of being a Roman soldier on crucifixion duty would have been that you could take whatever clothes was left over from that prisoner and you could have it for yourself or for a loved one, or even sell it there at the market. 
I've been told that a person would have five articles of clothing. They'd have a headgear, they'd have sandals, a girdle, outer garment, and an inner garment, or a or tunic. Of these five articles of clothing, each prisoner was assigned four soldiers. Do the math. Of these four soldiers, each one get one thing, but that would be one leftover tunic. So how are you going to divvy that up? And according to the scriptures here, the tunic had no seams. Now, probably you've torn a shirt before. They use it for a rag or something in the garage. And when you tear it, you tear it along the seam. It's very vulnerable and weak there. But how do you take a fabric that has no seam in it and tear it? This was the dilemma of the soldiers. So they said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to roll dice. And the winner gets the second article of clothing. They will get this tunic. Now, loved ones, can you think of anything more irreverent or disrespectful that as Jesus is dying on the cross, right below him are four soldiers that are rolling dice for this leftover garment. As chaotic as that might seem, John tells us that this was all according to God's plan. In Psalm 22, verse 18 is quoted there in the last part of verse 24, where it says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. It was all according to God's overarching plan. Let's consider a third word in our outline, and that is the word mother. Now, as I reflect on my own life, I can say before you with a clear conscience that I am so thankful for the good health that I have experienced for most of my life. Even as we went through COVID, I might have got COVID a few times, but my symptoms were very mild. And when I just think back to over the years of my life, there's only been a couple of times where I would say that I was really sick. I can think of a time in college when I got strep throat and I was out for a while. And when I think back to times that I was really sick, I think there was one person in my life that I thought of the most important. Me. <laughs> when I was sick and when I have been in pain, I am consumed by myself. I want to remind you where Jesus is and what his last day has been like. And as he is in pain, where does his mind go? Look with me at verses 25, 26, and 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. As he is going through this excruciating pain, as he is being humiliated in front of all these people, where does his mind go? To his mother. And I wonder if Mary, as she was there at the foot of the cross, had her mind go back to the time that when this child Jesus was just a baby 
And she was brought in with Joseph, Mary, and, and Jesus into the temple. And they bumped into this old guy named Simeon. Do you remember that? And do you remember what Simeon prophesied about this child and Mary? This old man went into the temple, asked if he could scoop up that little child, and he looked at the child, and he looked at Mary, and he said this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And then he said, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. She may have not had a a physical spear uh, piercing through her that day, but emotionally she was experiencing the pain of seeing her son there on the cross. Mary is in need of care. And so he says to Mary, this man here, this disciple, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, will look after you. It is interesting, isn't it? As we read through the Gospels, there's a time where there are 70 disciples. And by the time we get to John 13, there are 12 there in the upper room. By the end of John 13, there are 11. Judas goes out and he's going to betray Jesus. Later that evening, there are three disciples, James, John, and Peter, that pray with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. A little bit later, Peter denies Jesus, and there at the foot of the cross, there is only one, John. And while the dudes are gone, there are many women there. And it's just another reminder of how valuable women are in ministry. There are three Marys. Let me introduce you to Mary. Mary and Mary. In our church, that would be Jessica or Jess. Jess, Jess, Jess. We have a lot of Jess or Jessicas in our church. You might ask this question, where's Joseph? Why isn't he at the foot of the cross? Well, it's believed that he's, he's probably gone by now. He probably had died. But didn't, didn't Mary have an, other daughters and, and, and brothers, rather daughters and sons? Why wouldn't they be taking care of Mary? Now, we can only speculate, but it could be that none of them were believers at this point. And so there's such value in the faith family That when Jesus is on the cross, he says to a follower, John, John, you look after my mother. And and she does. Let's consider a fourth word in our outline. We've looked at cross, we've looked at garment, we've looked at mother. Now let's consider this word finished. In verse 28 it says, After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine and on a hyssop branch held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now during the time of 
Passion Week, often we'll hear messages on the seven sayings of Jesus. These are the seven different things that he said during the time of the cross. John does not include all seven of those, rather only three of them. The first we just read when he says, this is your mother. And now we're going to look at the second and third that he concludes in his account. We see in verse 28 where he says, I thirst. The context of this would be about three o'clock. He is about ready to die. Likely he has already said what's recorded in Matthew 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it says there in verse 28, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished. At this moment, he had become sin so that we might receive the righteousness of God. And his work was now complete. And to reveal or display his humanity here, he is thirsty. One of the side effects of being on the cross would be that you were dehydrated. His tongue, his throat was dry. If he would have tried to speak any words, it would have been raspy. And Jesus had one more thing left to say. And so we see in this passage that a hyssop branch is lowered into some cheap wine and then brought back up to his mouth so he can get a swallow before he says his last words. If you think about a hyssop branch, that's also found in Exodus chapter 12 during the time of the Passover. The hyssop branch would have been used to to dip in the blood and to spread the, the blood over the doorpost of which it just happens to be that time of day where that had been taken place. And then we read here his last words in verse 30. It is finished. The Greek word telestai, which includes multiple meanings, to to pay in full, to say that it is finished is, is to say that all the prophecies, all the promises in the Old Testament are now finished. That satisfaction of God's justice was now finished. That animal sacrifices are now finished. That the power of Satan, sin, and death are now finished. And then we read the last part of verse 30. And he gave up his spirit. I think those words are so important. Because it reminds us that death did not overtake Jesus. Rather, he chose death. And according to John 10, he said, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And let me give you two more words before we leave this passage. The fifth word is the word death. Look at what it says here in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Let me help you with that a moment. 
in another glimpse of pure hypocrisy, these Jews who had just killed an innocent man and had rejected God's chosen Messiah, says we have a law in the book of Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, that a person's body shall not remain all night on the tree, but shall be buried on the same day. And so we got to fulfill that law. So we need to make sure that that, that body comes down. According to Dr. William Edwards in the Journal of American Medical Association, he said that death from crucifixion could come from many sources. Acute shock from blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack or congestive heart failure, leading to a cardiac rupture. And if the victim did not die quickly enough, the legs were broken, and the victim was soon unable to breathe and died of suffocation. You probably know that when a person was on the cross, there was actually a little wooden seat here that would keep their their body up. But in order to breathe, they would have to extend their legs in order to allow air to go through their lungs. But if you break their legs with a club and they don't have the strength to be able to extend their legs, then they will suffocate and die sooner. In fact, in the body that was found in 1968 from an archaeological dig, it was found that those legs were broken. As we read further in verse 32, it says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was, mark this, already dead, they did not break his legs. It wasn't a matter of him not being strong. It was a matter of him fulfilling his purpose. And now he moved on. Verse 40, 34 says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. According to a doctor, Dr. Stroud, he said this indicates that Jesus' death was caused by a rupture of the heart. And then in verse 35, John just steps in here as the eyewitness of all this. And he says this, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe, or that you also may believe. John was present there. And now he is speaking out to say, I can offer a first-hand account of all these events. Years later, there would be a heresy that would crop up called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believed that Jesus did not have a physical body, but it was a spiritual body. And John could say, no, he didn't. I was there. I saw the spear go into his side. I saw the water. I saw the blood come out. In verse 36, for these things took place in the scriptures that might be fulfilled. According to Exodus 12, 46, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, according to Zechariah 12, verse 10, they will look on him 
whom they have pierced. One other word for our passage today. There's the cross, there is the garment, there is the mother, there's the finished, there is death. And now let me give you this one. There is the burial. I find it interesting that when Paul, the great apostle, the great missionary and church planter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he tells the Corinthian church what the gospel is, he said there are three parts of that gospel. Let me read that for you. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the first part, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Secondly, that he was buried. Thirdly, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. According to Paul's gospel, according to our gospel, it ought to have three parts. Jesus' death for our sins, the burial, and also the resurrection. And so we've got these verses here, verses 38 through 42, that speak about the burial. What would typically happen when a body was left up on the cross is that sometimes the Romans would just leave that dead carcass up on the cross and birds would come and eat the meat off that body. There were other times where the body would be taken down by family, by friends, and it would be buried or put into a tomb. I think we can conclude that Jesus didn't have money, nor did his family. But we see in verse 38 that he did have some friends. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. We learn from Luke that Joseph of Arimathea was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. And then in verse 39, here's our old friend, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now why so much? Clearly it was a gesture of generosity and value that Nicodemus had for Jesus. I think we can conclude that Nicodemus became a believer following that encounter in John chapter 3. It says here in verse 40, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in a linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. There appears to be some symmetry again with this concept of the garden. In Genesis, we read of the garden. It was there where the first Adam committed sin. And now we see a second garden at the end of Jesus' life, paying for the consequences of that first sin. Charles Spurgeon includes a neat little note here on verse 41 when he talks about a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. 
The reason that was so important is that there was this superstition out there that you could lay a person's body next to an old prophet. And that body might touch the bones of that old prophet and something might happen and come to life. But you see, in this tomb, no one had ever been laid there before. In verse 42, it says, And so because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, you can do this. You don't have to. But in my, my Bible, I wrote three words in pencil right next to that. Not for long. So there you have his burial. And what is the significance of this burial? Without no burial, there is no forgiveness. Without the burial, there is no resurrection. And without the burial, there is no Christianity. As we close this message, I want to bring you back to those three words that we read a little bit earlier. And it's the words, it is finished, there in verse 30. I want to expand on that as we close today. I was listening to a pastor, Pastor Skip Heitzig of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he said that that phrase or that Greek word, tetelestai, can be used in four different ways. The first way is that of a servant that is fulfilling the master's assignment. Yesterday, I was here up all, at the church all day, and there was what appeared to be about 10 feet of snow in our driveway, Right? So I appealed to the family, would you please shovel that snow? And they responded back to their master, it is finished, to tell us die. The assignment that you have asked us to do, it has been done. Do you remember when Jesus met with the woman at the well? And there was some confusing part there as the disciples came back because they were going to get food. Hey, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, to finish his work. So there as Jesus was on the cross, he said to the Father, to tell us die, it is finished. The second way that phrase can be used is of a priest who would use the word when inspecting a sacrifice. They wanted to make sure that that lamb was without spot or blemish. And once it went through the inspection and it was ready for sacrifice, the priest would say this to Telestai, that is, it is finished. And Jesus went through his entire life without a blemish or a spot, according to 1 Peter 1, verse 19. And we see the lamb actually offering up himself as our sacrifice. The third way that we see this phrase, it is finished, or to tell us thy, is that of an artist. When he or she is finished with a painting or a sculpture and they stand back and admire what they have done, they say, to tell us thy, it is finished. And as we read through the Old Testament scriptures, we get a few stories and a few 
foreshadows and a few promises and prophecies and a few types over here. But when we see the cross, we can step back and say, it is finished. Fourthly, the way that this word is used is that of a merchant. When an item was purchased at the market, they would reach down into their pockets and and, and offer some money to buy that item. And they would receive a receipt. And on that receipt would include the Greek word tetelestai, paid in full. So we sing that old song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it as white as snow. It is finished. There is nothing more that you need to do. There is nothing that you can do. In fact, I might say it this way, for you to try to contribute to the finished work of Jesus, the gift that God provided on your behalf would be offensive to him. What do you possibly think you could contribute to a right relationship with God? If you think that you could add something, what you are saying to God and to His Holy Son is that is not enough. But it is finished. Jesus paid the gift. You need to receive it. Jesus was rejected so that you would be accepted. He was bound to the cross so that you would be free from your sins. He was despised and rejected so that you could be received by the Father and His family. He was thirsty so that you could always be satisfied. He died so that you could live. He took on your bloody mess so that you may walk in love, joy, and peace. Church family, it is finished. All that's left to do is to receive that gift and to live on that gift. Let's pray a prayer of thanksgiving to him today. So often, Lord, we, we conclude a Sunday school lesson, a Bible study, a sermon by talking about how Jesus died for our sins. And it is our only hope. It is through this where we have grace that we can have a relationship with you. It's been so helpful for me and I hope for us today to just go back to that story and just read it carefully again. To reflect on the agony. Yes, the physical pain, but ultimately the separation that Jesus experienced because of our sin. We've read in the scriptures about a garden in which this mess called sin entered the world. And we read about another garden 
where the one died for that sin. I'm so grateful that the story does not end in the 19th chapter of John. But there's a 20th chapter that speaks to us about how he raised to life. Lord, would you remind us today that we can rest in you, that there is no good works that we can do, that in combination with what Jesus has done would make us worthy of a relationship. Help us today to to just appreciate the finished work of Christ. And worship you. We offer our mess to you. We offer our pain and our brokenness to you. And you exchange it with forgiveness, with acceptance, with love. Oh, may we never drift far from this passage, this event. May we sing of it. May we come back to it and call others to the forgiveness that is granted here at the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.